Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test based in Annapolis, Maryland. Reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Hello, and welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're joined by Dr. Brian A. Williams. Dr. Williams is Dean of the College of Arts and Humanities at the Templeton Honors College. If this is your first time listening to us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a podcast where our CEO, Jeremy Tay, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on issues at the intersection of education and culture. We appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to Anchored at cltexam.com. Now, without any further ado, let's get on with the conversation. Welcome back to the Anchored Podcast, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. Today, uh, we have a very exciting guest, uh, one of my favorite people ever, uh, Dr. Brian Williams. He is the Dean of the College of Arts and Humanities at Templeton Honors College. Dr. Williams, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, thanks, Jeremy. I uh, love being here with you, and that uh, feeling of affection is quite mutual. I love Jeremy and the Classic Learning Test and what they've been doing over the last several years. So, very excited to be here. Thanks, man. So we, I think the first time I remember meeting you was in New York City in 2017, and I, I was super impressed because what you what you did there is you taught on kind of the history of assessment, which given what we do here at CLT was was fascinating. So I want to dig into that uh, a bit today, but I, I want to start off, and you have such a fascinating academic background. I'm, I'm always just like enamored with people who have a PhD from Oxford. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm going for the first time with Mr. Keith Nix in just a, a week. Um, but I want to start off like early, early childhood. Like, did you love, uh, I, I picture you reading like Narnia and Greek mythology and all this as a young <laughs> child. Was that the case or did the love for learning come later? No, man, it came early. And it's funny, you picked the, you know, two things that sparked my young imagination. I mean, I grew up uh, with uh, wonderful parents and my mom read to us a lot. And so I, I had mom reading to me and I listened to a lot of books on record uh, back in the day because they weren't the books on tape yet or audio books, but I would sit and listen to Swiss Family Robinson and Robinson Crusoe on record. And then, yeah, when I learned to read, that's what I did. And so the Narnia Chronicles, uh, my mom laughed sometimes. I have two brothers and we each had our own set and she could say, you know, Brian's set was trashed because it had been read so many times pages were falling out. One brother's had clearly been read and another brother's was still in pristine condition because he never really got into him. So yeah, Greek mythology, you know, and for me, Greek mythology, when I was in grade one or two, it was those kind of scholastic book orders and happened to order a book of Greek myths and then just loved it. And from there went on to Norse mythology and Roman. And so, you know, those were... That was the imaginative world in which I, I lived as a kid. You know, I wanted to be Thor and I wanted to go on grand mm. adventures. So, yeah. And we didn't have a TV most of the years I was growing up for one reason or another. So, you know, you either ran in the woods or you read books. And uh, I did a lot of both of those things. So I'm thinking about a timeline here. And you just did this crazy ultra marathon for your 50th birthday, which is incredible. Maybe later on we'll have to talk about that. Um so, but but timeline. So you're you're growing up in the 70s, really before the classical Christian or classical renewal movement even began. 
Um, and, and I think even at that time, there were a lot of Christian families that were skeptical of Greek mythology. It seems like your, your academic formation oh, at any right. age was very, very unique. Um, is that accurate? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I went to a, a small Christian school growing up. So the seventies, yes, were before classical renewal, but it was also a time when you had a lot of places, a lot of churches starting their own schools. And so mm-hmm. happened to be that the church my family went to started one, uh, when I was in first grade. And so I started going there and I, I don't remember reading that kind of literature at that school, but certainly I never had anybody, you know, uh, try to steer me away from Greek mythology or Roman or Norse mythology (laughs) or or Narnia. Tolkien, I came to unfortunately late. Nobody put that in my hands. Uh, But reading stories and, and living in an imaginative world and thinking about the world and engaging the world in some of the ways that, you know, classical schools and Charlotte Mason schools do, that just came kind of natural, I, I think, uh, to me and my family. My mom was a Kansas farm girl um, and valedictorian of her high school class. I never let her forget. You know, and she just loved creation. And so we would walk through the woods and she would point things out and read stories. And so I, I don't know how unique it was, but certainly it was a, it was a rich. Uh, you know, Sounds like a, a beautiful, beautiful childhood. Where, where were you growing up? So this is in southwest Missouri. Uh, in Joplin, Missouri, very close to the kind of Ozark mountains and, and hills there. Okay. Okay. Now walk us through your academic journey. So undergrad and then, and then what was kind of the, the path to Oxford like for you? Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a long story. I'll try to keep it short. Um, so I leaving high school, I wanted to go do politics and law. So I was really keen on, I wanted to become a lawyer. I wanted to become a Supreme court judge, you know, when I was 16, <laughs> Got to aim uh, high. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I, I really wanted to impact people and help them live well. That was my idea of going into politics and law. Mm-hmm. Um, got detoured a little bit and in, instead of going that route, decided to go to um, uh, a Bible college, a Christian school, and think about pastoral ministry as a way to uh, help okay. people live well. So I did my undergrad. Um, where my dad was a music professor at a little Christian college there in Southwest Missouri and had a, had a good education in reading scripture, but literally learning how to read old texts in mm. other languages, you know? So okay. it was, it was a strong kind of humanities co- approach to reading scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did my undergrad with a, a bachelor's in biblical literature and then I, I opened my own, as everybody does with a Bible college degree, I opened my own <laughs> coffee bar and cafe and kind of art nice. gallery uh, concert nice. venue for a few years. But all the while, you know, knowing I wanted to be in the classroom or do more study. And so I ended up going to uh, Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia, okay. where I lived for about 10 years and did a couple graduate degrees up there in historical and systematic oh, theology. Okay. Working with Packer up there? Yeah, so uh, I ended up, I had the privilege of being um, J.I. Packer's teaching assistant for four years and working very closely with him and had a great experience at Regent. And it was a place I was interested in because it's always had a real emphasis, not only on theology, but also about thinking about culture and the arts 
and how yeah. to live well as human persons and believers. Mm-hmm. And so that was fascinating to me. Uh, so that was the next step. Okay. And then it was uh, several years b- back in Kansas, where my wife is from, teaching at Care Paravel Latin School. It's a great name. Great. Right? <laughs> yeah. And it came um, up with that. That's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, it was started in um, 1980. So really the, the very earliest classical oh, yeah. school in the renewal movement. So there were three schools started about that time in 80 and 81. There was okay. Logos out in Moscow. There was the Trinity schools. And then there was Care Paravel uh, in Topeka, Kansas. And it was started by several graduates of the uh, kind of famous integrated humanities program at the University of Kansas, ran by John Sr. and others. And Sr., he always told his students, hey, college is too late for this kind of education. You guys Mm. need to start schools. So several students took him up on it. So I was there for seven years, and then I decided to go to Oxford after Okay. Now, if you're you're not a Chronicles of Narnia junkie, as as Dr. Williams and I am, uh, Dr. Williams, how how would you, is is Care kind of represent heaven in the Chronicles of Narnia? How would you describe it? Well, okay, so Care in the Chronicles of Narnia is the castle uh, of Narnia. And when the four Pevensey children make their way into Narnia, it's where they are crowned kings and queens of Narnia. And one of the deals with the Narnia stories is that, or one of the challenges for the Pevensey children is to um, take back to their normal life in England, all mm. the the lessons and the character development and the virtues that they learned in Narnia to see if they could take that back to their normal life. And so there's a line in the story, once a king and queen of Narnia, always a king and queen of Narnia. So mm-hmm. part of the idea behind calling it Care Paravel Latin School was saying, like Narnia, like Care Paravel, this is where students are formed, you know, intellectually, spiritually, morally, aesthetically, with the hope that when they leave Care Paravel for the rest of their lives, they will go on being, you know, if you will, kings and queens mm-hmm. of Narnia taking those lessons and that formation with them into whatever they do and wherever they do it. That, that was the idea behind the school. Love that. So let's, let's get into Oxford for a minute. Um, yep. Was this a dream, like a long time dream before you even went there? Had you been thinking about it for kind of years and years? Um, I had been thinking about doing doctoral studies for years and years and years and didn't really know where that would be. I mean, my field uh, really was, you know, Bible and theology and then increasingly theological ethics Uh, I worked on uh, the political theology of Karl Barth for uh, Mm -hmm. a long master's um, thesis when I was at Regent. So I was looking for a place I could do that. And obviously, Oxford was always in my imagination because so many people came through there over the years, so many authors Mm -hmm. I had read. And as a kind of historical theologian, so many of the theologians I read had come through there. And they happened to have a really strong Christian ethics program. Uh, led by my eventual doctoral supervisor, um, uh, Nigel Bigger, who's there. And Nigel had gone to Regent like I had, but 20 some years before I had. And so when I, you know, when I started thinking about places to go, I thought, oh, Oxford could be a possibility for me. Um, Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, I mean, it's hard, you know, once I got accepted to Oxford, it's hard to imagine (laughs) going anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah. so then it became just, you know, how, how to make that happen. And I'm so grateful. A lot of doors opened and it became very possible for me to go. And one of the reasons I went was, and I wanted to do more study, was when I started teaching at Care Paravel in the classical tradition, 
I wanted to understand the classical tradition of education. And mm -hmm. I wanted to understand uh, the longer tradition. And a, a lot of these individuals that I knew as theologians or as authors, you know, I came to discover they were also educators and left us writings on education. And so really going to Oxford was a chance to do some doctoral studies, a chance to live in Oxford, but really a chance to dig into the longer tradition and try to understand what this thing is that um, we're all about now. So, so as I was saying, the first couple of minutes, you know, the first time I heard you teach, we're, we're in New York City at the King's College, uh, good, good CLT friends there. Yep. And uh, you're, you're teaching on the history of assessment. It was really is fascinating. Um, can you tell us kind of a, a couple of minutes of the, the big takeaways? Um, I mean, as we know, modern assessment, especially with like a, you know, A, B, C, D, uh, F grading scale, percentages, all of yep. this, this is all very new, you know, in the history of education. Um, well, what did you learn at your time of, uh, at Oxford about that question in particular around assessment? Yeah. And, and that's, I think where I really began thinking about um, grading and grades. So after I finished my doctorate there, I was uh, privileged to come on faculty as a departmental lecturer um, and then taught for a couple of years in the tutorial system and, and some lecture courses. And when I was in the tutorial system, and for those of you who don't know, Oxford undergraduate program uh, really centers around one-on-one -on -one tutorials uh, with a professor where uh, for you know, eight week terms and students will go through a, a, a huge reading list and write essays every week and sit one-on-one -on -one for an hour at a time with um, tutors, with fellows, with professors. And in that experience, they get no grades. So Oxford students don't get grades. There, there's no grades as part of the system. There's no GPA. There's no nobody. Thinks, and, and like there never has been. Is that accurate? Never has been. Okay. Now, they are assessed at the end of their three years. They take a series of exams that determine, you know, kind of determine their degree. But along the way, there are no grades hanging over your head. And so mm -hmm. when I was doing these tutorial sessions, it was the closest experience I've had as an educator to my experience of being a coach. So when I taught high school, I taught mm -hmm. uh, I, I coached high school girls soccer, which is my sport. And then all of a sudden, when I'm in tutorials without the grade, I'm in the mode of coach again. Mm. And every week I would give them feedback on their essays so that they could improve the next week. And I would wrestle with their ideas and ask them questions. And I thought, wow, if, if this, if we're able to educate like this without grades, where mm. do the grades come from and why do we use them? And if I'm not using them at Oxford and I never used grades when I was coaching my players, Right. I mean, that thought's kind of absurd. Why yeah. do we use them in schools? So that's when I really turned in um, to investigating the history of grades and, and grading and where they came from and discovered that they were designed to rank students against one another when there were scarce mm. prizes to go around. They were not they were not designed to serve any pedagogical purpose. They were not designed because they were natural to education. And in fact, um, they were originally kept secret from students because the people who, who came up with them worried that they would uh, cause students to, if you will, care about the wrong things and then would increase competition between students. And so they said, we need to keep these secret from students. Right. Well, that's telling, too. And we're talking about they didn't become ubiquitous until really the late 19th century. Mm. So this has not been a part of education for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. 
there were no grades. And so it's just fascinating to think, okay, where did the, you know, in, in the United States, then, you know, we've got the 4.0 system, the ABCDEF system, the 100% system. And just to find where those came from and how they got sort of um, kind of poorly meshed together, you know, just yeah. opened my eyes. Yeah, I mean, all all school is, I think, for most students in America is great, is getting great. I mean, right. it, it is everything, right? Yeah. And right now, it's worse than ever. I mean, all of these students are hooked up to these devices where grades get updated uh, in real time. You know, oh. teachers enter them, they hit refresh 50 times a day, refresh, refresh, refresh. I, I mean, this is, is this toxic? Like, is this just killing? Absolutely. Absolutely toxic. You know, and... um Okay, so you know, Aristotle says one of the important things about teaching virtue to children is helping them feel pleasure and pain at the right things, mm. right? I think when we introduce grades into an educational, uh, into an academic institution, we teach kids to feel pleasure and pain at the wrong things. Mm. And so Aristotle would say you're actually leading them towards vice, not towards virtue, because what we've taught students is that the end of education is not wonder. It's not learning. It's not understanding. Mm. It's a single letter grade. And they do the work and they learn things in order to trade that in for a letter grade that then accumulates. And that's what they really care about. So I think it's, I think it's toxic for a number of reasons because, um, you know, without grades, um, well, here, here's what happens, right? Then students predicate their well-being on the grade that they get. And so you have some students who only care about getting A's, not about learning. So if you told, if you asked a bunch of students, would you accept an A in this course at the expense of learning nothing? The majority of them would say, and the majority of their parents would say, yeah, take that deal, right? Yeah. So clearly they care about that. You know, it increases stress uh, for students because then they, they only care about getting the grade. It actually decreases intellectual curiosity and courage because then students don't want to take hard classes where they might get a, a lower grade because it hurts their GPA. It increases competition. It increases cheating because cheating hardly makes sense in the absence of grades. Uh, so, and I think it teaches students to, to see learn, to see the end of learning as a letter grade. And one problem I think too, is that then when there's nobody around to give you a letter grade, why would I keep learning? So when I leave school, why would I keep learning things and reading things when there's nobody to reward me with a gold star or a letter A or something? So what do you what do you say? I mean, you're you're a major voice in in the classical renewal movement, the classical Christian movement. Um, you know, these these new schools are launching, or, or you're, you're talking to a head of school. I mean, is your advice just no grades uh, at all? I mean, that that sounds. I I love the idea, but it also sounds really radical. Right. So different. What do, what kind of advice do you give? Right. You? Okay. So yeah. So we are in this one. One of the challenges is that we are in this interlocking system where our students move from grammar school to middle school to upper school to college. Right. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons that one of the one of the um, roles that grades have come to play are a kind of uh, academic capital that students trade in and trade up for a seat at the table in a college or university of their choice. So it's hard to get away from grades in our upper school 
in our upper schools because students will, you know, bank those grades as a kind of currency that then they pay out for a seat at a college or university. So I get it, (laughs) right? I get it that it's hard not to have grades in the upper schools, but it's worth asking, do we need grades in lower school? Do we need Mm -hmm. grades in middle school? To to what purpose or to what end? Because students are not taking their grades, their GPAs with them into middle school or into high school. So I encourage, you know, classical schools to really consider doing away with grades in the lower school, doing away with grades in middle school, and then in upper school, finding ways to mitigate the adverse effects of the grading system on our students. And I mean, I'll tell you, like for me teaching university, um, a few years ago, uh, when I started, when I came back to Templeton, um, I would not give my students their letter grade with my comments on their essays. Because every study shows that if you return an essay to a student with comments and a grade, they skip the comments and they go right to the grade. Wow. Right? Okay. And so yeah. that, that turns that assignment, it, it puts the professor or the teacher in the position of a judge passing a verdict on past action rather than a coach pointing Mm. out the things that the student could do better next time. Mm. So what I started doing, I would give my students their essays back with copious assessment, which is different grades. And then four or five days later, I would just email them their letter grade in order to separate those. Well, then a couple of years ago, I stopped emailing the grades at all. And Mm. I said, if you want to know your grade, send me an email and I will let you know. In okay. three in three years in multiple classes, I have had two students email me for their grades on an assignment. Wow! Right, and so there there are ways that we can help students reframe yeah. and reorient education okay. and learning away yeah. from grades. Uh, on the secondary side, and before we dig into Templeton here, yeah. uh, are there some schools that you see doing this well? Are there a few that you can name that maybe our, our audience can kind of take a look at what they're doing or reach out to them? Well, the one the one that really comes to mind is Veritas School in Richmond, where, you know, you and I have a lot of friends that teach there. And uh, it's where, you know, Josh Gibbs is and Robin Burlew and Keith Nix and others. They have really taken this on uh, and tried to think, okay, how can we reframe education? Excuse me. So that in the lower grades, we educate without grades entirely. And in the upper school we take steps to, again, mitigate the adverse effects of these grades. So we are not orienting students to full pleasure and pain at the wrong things. Mm. And so I would send people to Veritas. I would send people to um, Robin Burlew and Keith and, and kind of find out what they're doing there. And because, you know, we all grew up with grades. Our parents grew up with grades. The parents of yeah. our students grew up with grades. And so it is a radical suggestion, but if anybody's going to tackle it, boy, our classical schools ought to be tackling this and trying to reimagine what could this look like such that 10 years from now, 15 years from now, we might be in a different Mm -hmm. place. I'll tell you as, you know, uh, as Dean of a selective honors college, when I get a student's GPA, I hardly know what to do with it because Mm -hmm. it all depends on what school they went to what curriculum that school had and what courses that student took. So a GPA to some degree is somewhat meaningless 
to me, to be honest, when I'm looking at, you know, uh, uh, admitting a student who has applied to the Honors College. So let's talk about Templeton Honors College. Um, I, I, I've heard more and more about this over the years. I think it's becoming increasingly popular for uh, CLT test takers and, and students coming out of these amazing classical schools and homeschools. Um, what year is this for you at Templeton? So this is my fifth year at Templeton. I came here uh, from Oxford in 2017. Okay. Okay. So we're, we're, we're seeing a lot of CLT test takers right now uh, matriculate to place like the, the Honors College at Baylor or uh, the Honors College at Belmont Abbey or Torrey. Um, t- tell us about, about t- uh, Templeton. Um, how are you like or different from some of these places? Um, and then it, it, is, it is a selective program. Um, what, what do students do if they want to kind of explore this or take a next step? Right. So uh, I mean, first thing to say, all those programs you just mentioned are great. Uh, I, I love those programs. I love the people of those programs. And I'm friends with a lot of those people. And, you know, th- those are great uh, programs uh, to look at. Um, so uh, the Honors College at, at Tem- the Templeton Honors College at Eastern University uh, is similar to some of those and, and different from some of those. It was started in 1999. Um, and right now we have three programs within the Honors College. We have a, a really wonderful summer program for high school students called the Summer Scholars Program. And we ran a special um, summer scholars program for CLT test takers last summer, which was fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and boy, we had some fantastic students come and they spent a week with us learning about the American Revolution, uh, the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement. And they visited Gettysburg and they visited Independence Hall and they visited um, uh, Valley Forge. And so the summer scholars program is a, a week long program with students from around the country who come and do a course and get college credit for it. So that's the summer scholars high school program. Now the undergrad program. Yeah. yeah. And so this program, this is for rising juniors, rising seniors, both. That's right. This is for rising juniors, rising seniors. We've had the occasional right. rising sophomore enter it. And there we do week long courses with our faculty on like the course I just mentioned called American revolutions. We have a course on the moral vision of CS Lewis, the fantasy literature of Tolkien we have a course okay. now on um, coding with the ancients, which is uh, learning how to code and thinking about the ethics of um, technology. And so we do a number of these courses every summer. And and uh, if a parent is listening to this and is interested, uh, can, can they be guaranteed that they will have you as a teacher? Is that possible? You- <laughs> I, I am involved in each one of those courses. Okay. Uh, I often do the very first session and the and the closing session. Uh, in those courses. But then, you listen, we have a we have a pretty amazing faculty here at Templeton. You know, everybody, you know, their, their PhDs come from uh, UVA, where your wife went, or Notre Dame, or Yale, or Cambridge, or Oxford. And so it, it's really a top-notch faculty that these high school students get to sit with. Or, you know, like with the course that I just mentioned on American Revolutions, we had one of the leading uh, Civil War historians in America and the founding dean of the Honors College named Alan Gelzo, who's now at Princeton. Alan came and did an evening with those high school students telling them stories. And, I mean, you know, it's, it's a pretty wonderful experience for a, a rising junior senior for a, a week, week and a half. OK. And Templeton Honors College, you know, is, is selective. Uh, does it help a student if they're looking at that already? They're wanting to get into Templeton Honors College. Does it help to do the summer program as a high school student? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because not only do they get a chance to be with Templeton professors, we get a chance to be with them for a week and a half mm-hmm. and see their writing and see how they are in seminars. And so 
Yeah, if anybody's interested in the in the undergraduate program, starting uh, with the summer scholars program is is a is a really is a really great way to move into the undergrad program. It's it's a good door because we get a chance to spend time with a student and see who they are and what what they're like. So okay. The undergrad. And what program. is? We'll, yeah. we'll send out in the show notes uh, a link here. What is kind of the deadline? When do they need to apply to this by? Uh, so for the summer scholars program, I think the deadline is sometime in March, okay. and then those courses run in I think late June and July is usually when we run those those summer courses. Okay. Okay. So deadline to apply uh, in March. Um, <clears throat> when I first started hearing about the Templeton Honors College, uh, one of the things that really struck me was like what you do the very first week. <laughs> so it's for first week and you take these you know, these students on a pretty grueling like five day backpacking expedition through the Adirondacks. Tell us about this trip. Yeah, well, so the undergrad program, um, the undergrad program, uh, a couple of things I love about it. Uh, and the the thing that you mentioned is this uh, hiking and camping trip to the Adirondack Mountains. Uh on which we take our incoming freshman cohort. So, and here's why. The Honors College undergrad program satisfies our students' general education requirements. So, it's a it's a it's a roughly 40-hour program that satisfies the students' uh, GE requirements and it's an integrated great questions and great books program, mm-hmm. leaving students to major in whatever they want to. So if students don't major in the honors college and most of my students major in, you know, um, math or biochem or pre-med or history or philosophy, all the while being immersed in this integrated great books program. But while it's a while it's an integrated great books program that satisfies a student's general education requirements, it's also a deeply formative culture and community mm-hmm. So we do all kinds of things in the Honors College to foster community between students and to foster friendships with faculty. And one of the things we do is we take our incoming cohort on a week-long backpacking camping trip to the Adirondack Mountains of New York, where, man, we hike and canoe in all of our supplies and food. We set up camp by this gorgeous lake called Forked Lake, and we live together for a week in tents. And boy, you want to get to know somebody, go, you know, go camp with them for a week. And we hike the two highest peaks in New York state. But this is also where we begin their Templeton education. And so one of the first things students will do with me in their first class called The Good Life, we read Homer's Odyssey. And so we start reading the Odyssey around this mountain lake. So picture this. We're in this we're in this grove of trees right by this beautiful mountain lake and my upperclassmen are there and we do a reader's theater version of books one and two of the Odyssey while the incoming cohort is sitting there. And if you know the Odyssey, you know the first four books are called the Telemachy because they're about Telemachus, this 17, 18-year-old person trying to find their way as an adult into the adult world. It's the exact same place these incoming freshmen are. And so there we are reading about Telemachus and his struggles and his need for mentors while we're together. And, you know, and so it's this really fantastic uh, launching point for the rest of their their career in Templeton and then in college. 
It, it, it sounds amazing. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you, I've seen more yeah. and more on, on the secondary side, talking to, to superintendents on, on the Catholic archdiocese level, um, that they're recruiting future teachers for a lot of these classical schools out of places like Baylor Honors College, Aquinas College. I imagine the same thing. Are, are you finding that more and more schools are looking to you for, for teachers coming out of, of Templeton Honors College? Yeah, that, that's right. And, and a lot of those, a lot of those schools, a lot of those um, school networks like Great Hearts, of course, in Arizona and Texas, you know, they send mm-hmm. somebody up to us a couple times a year. Because, just recruiting, recruiting your students. Just recruiting our students to be their teachers. Wow. Because yeah. they're seeing, you know, that our students are coming through this deeply formative program, you know, where they are shaped, you know, intellectually, mm-hmm. morally, aesthetically, spiritually, whatever. And they, you know, and they've they've read the texts. And so and I think our students in Templeton understand the importance of a formative school culture and yeah. a faculty of friends. And that's what a lot of these classical schools want and need. So, yes. Yeah, so they're recruiting our undergrad students. They're also recruiting um, our graduate students because three years ago I started um, a master's program in classical education and teaching because when I was at Care Paravel, you know, and we've known this for a long time, one of the biggest needs in the classical renewal movement was for teachers who were educated in the classical um, way of educating because so few of us grew up with that. And so coming back from Oxford, it's one of the things I wanted to start at Templeton was an MA in classical ed and teaching. And so we have an MAT program. And in that program, we have a number of um, working teachers. So we really designed it for working teachers. And we have an increasing number of undergraduate students who are already starting classes in the MAT program with a view towards teaching in a classical school someday. This, I, I did not even, I did not know about this. So, so typically I hear people talk about the University of Dallas and Benedictine's rolling out a program and I hear there's talk at Hillsdale. You've been doing this already for a couple of years though. So if you're already a first or second year teacher, you can, you can do this program and get a master's. Is that accurate? Absolutely. That's absolutely right. Yeah. We started this um, about the same time that UD did just after UD. So we started this in yeah. I mean, I think our first group was 2018. So we are into our third and fourth year here. And it's designed for working teachers. It's a 30-hour master's program with intensive classes in the summer and then one online class in the fall and one in the spring. And so, you know, if if you did it hardcore, you could do it in about 16 months. Okay. And we have incorporated into our um, program, you know, folks, folks like me, I teach uh, a course on the history and philosophy of ancient medieval education. Mm-hmm. Uh, other other Templeton faculty members, as, all, as well as folks like um, Angel Adams Parham, is going to be teaching a new course for us on classical education and the Black intellectual tradition. Greg Wolf uh, teaches our class on beauty. Uh, Kevin Clark, uh, author of the um, liberal arts tradition, he teach he's been teaching a course for us on. Uh, classical, the classical tradition and the young person. Mm-hmm. And so we, we have a nice combination of practitioners, people with experience in K-12 schools and academics yeah. uh, who are bringing to our master's students what we've been doing in the Honors College for 25 years now. You know, th- this is really great news and you really can't exaggerate how, how kind of dire the need is in some ways for teachers because a lot of heads of schools at great classical schools they actually view both a teacher certification and even a teaching a major. If you graduate, you know, with a degree in secondary education from like a big state university, sometimes they see that as a liability because 
you've just kind of ingested bad ideas for four years. Um, and so th- it's crucial that this is like for the classical renewal movement to really scale, you've got to have great programs, great graduate programs. Um, is, is word out? Do the young teachers know that this exists? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I've been trying. You know, I mean, I, I speak a lot uh, and I'm trying to get the word out to people that we have this program, that it's 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 designed not only for um, new teachers, but we have a lot of people in it who are leaders in their schools or want to be leaders in their schools or, or who yeah. have been teaching in schools for a long time who wanted a grad degree or just wanted a stronger foundation in classical education. And so mm-hmm. we have a, a, a fantastic mix of brand new teachers and very experienced teachers. And one of the great things about pulling teachers from all over the country together in our, you know, our, our courses, they all get to learn from each other. They get to um, steal ideas from each other. And so, you know, if, if headmasters and school boards are listening, I would say, listen, you ought to really be investing in your teachers and finding ways to make programs like this possible for your teachers for the long-term success of your of your, your schools. Because then I tell all my students in the MA program, hey, you need to go back to your school and then be a leader in your school and bring what you're learning here in the Honors College in our MA program, you know, back to your teachers and parents and students. And so this is one way for me to really try to invest in this movement and move it on to the next moving on to the next steps, we see long-term, you know, real long-term and um, growth that is rooted uh, and really strong, I think. So Dr. Williams, two uh, final questions for you here. We always end the Anchor podcast talking about books, uh, the books that have kind of been most formative uh, to our guests. Before asking that, I'm wondering, because I'm going to be in Oxford next week with Mr. Keith Nix, uh, I'm wondering is there a spot in Oxford that was like your go-to spot to study where you're just surrounded by beauty and all things old and sacred? Um, Where is the one place we need to go when we're out there? Um, Here's the problem, Jeremy. Um, The the beautiful places like that, you're not going to have access to, uh, (laughs) I'm afraid. Um, But if you do get a chance to take a tour of the Bodleian Library, Make sure you um, get into the Duke Humphreys Library or get as close to it as you possibly can. So the Duke Humphreys Library is one of the oldest libraries at Oxford. You can't um, take ballpoint pens in there. You can't take bags in there um, because of the rare books that are in there. Um, And you have to sign in and sign out. But I spent a lot of time in the Duke Humphreys Library. And you might be able to get into this a lot of time in the Pusey House Library. So Pusey House is an Anglo-Catholic study center. It's been around 150 years. And my college, St. Cross, was right next to it. And so uh, the Pusey House Library is where I spent lots of time and uh, the Duke Humphreys Library in the Bodleian. So those are two. The other place I spent a lot of time, and I don't think you can get here, I'm afraid, is the Codrington Library at All Souls College. Um, All Souls College is the one college at Oxford that has no students. Oddly mm-hmm. enough, it's only a community of academics and professors. But I did pick the most beautiful places <laughs> in the city uh, to spend my time. So those were places yeah. I, 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 yeah, I, I lived and kind of put my plot down. Yeah, yeah, can't wait to get out there. All right, so so I'm, I'm curious to hear your answer here. What what is the book that has been most uh, influential on Dr. Brian Williams? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a dangerous question and an unanswerable question, Jeremy. When you ask an academic who spent his entire life reading reading books, I mean, and I, I'm going to give you a, an answer that, you know, people will say, oh, well, of course, that's, you know, that that's one of the books he would say. And I give you lots of book recommendation. But, you know, for me, um, and this is this wasn't the earliest book that was an influence on me. But, you know, Dante's comedy, um, it was the first book I read after I graduated from undergrad. And it was a book I had always wanted to read and knew about. And so the summer after I graduated, I just said, I'm reading this thing. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those books that I knew I was a different person after I read it. You know, similar experience after I read uh, my first Dostoevsky novel, which was The Idiot. I just realized, uh, oh, I'm different now. Or the first time I read Flannery O'Connor's short stories, you know, when I was 19, I was like, oh, I see the world differently. But after I read the comedy, it was that same kind of experience. And it happens to be, you know, a book I, I've taught and lectured on for years um, that I just keep coming back to. And it's it's the only book I will say that like scripture, hmm. um, I... I'm a different person every time I read it and I benefit from it every time I read it and I get something new out of it every time I read it. So here's another plug. Yeah. A great project that we're co-sponsoring is called the hundred days of Dante. It's yeah. a world's largest Dante reading group with over 20,000 people. And we're releasing uh, nine minute lectures on every canto of the comedy. And we've, we've partnered in this with our friends at um, Baylor university and university of Dallas uh, 100daysofdante.com for all your listeners should go there too. But yeah, I, I thought it was kind of funny actually that they they picked the guy who runs ultra marathons and has like 3% body fat to, to, to <laughs> teach the session on gluttony. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, you did laugh at that. I remember that. But well, you know, yeah. it is that, that canto is about gluttony for knowledge and gluttony <laughs> for power as well as just gluttony yeah. for food. So um, yeah, that is true. So I would say, you know, the 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 comedy is the book for me that synthesizes the classical tradition, synthesizes the Christian tradition. You know, it's a book of theology. It's a book of moral formation. It's a book of spiritual devotion. And so that's the book I would go to um, for people. And and you did a fantastic job, by the way. So so we launched with you uh, our, what we call our journey through the author bank. And and you taught the first uh, journey through the author bank. So these are live every Thursday night. They're on our YouTube channel as well. You taught the first one on Dante and and set a very high bar for all the professors who followed. Um, So that's fantastic. We will re-release that with this podcast Mm. as well. Uh, Again, we are here with Dr. Brian Williams, uh, the Dean of the Honors College uh, at Eastern University, Templeton Honors College. Uh, Dr. Williams, it is a delight to be with you today. Man, thanks, Jeremy. Always love hanging out with you. And I do hope you have a great time in Oxford and happy to give all kinds of recommendations for good restaurants and coffee bars and all kinds of places you can get into, man. So I hope you guys have a great time. Thank you. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to this episode of Anchored. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe and share it with your friends and colleagues. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.